Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service today, we're going to be focused on serve the world, that third part of our church's vision, to love people, connect to Jesus, and serve the world. And so I thought we would start out by sharing a few pictures of our Columbia mission team. Remember last Sunday, they were still in Miami, and they were stuck there because they had missed a connecting flight, but they had been in Columbia all week. Here is a picture right after they arrived in Columbia, finally made it there. And so you can see perhaps some familiar faces in that picture. The next one just came this morning at about uh, 8.45. Uh, our team was in worship this morning at a church in Colombia. And that church, at that moment, had stopped singing that song you see on the screen to pray for us. I thought you'd be encouraged that you have brothers and sisters in Colombia today praying with us and for us. The next picture there, that's what the congregation looks like when they're praying for us. And so I thought you'd be blessed to see the fact that our church is indeed global. And it's not just the free Methodist church that's global, it's the church of Jesus is everywhere. And there are people agreeing in prayer this day for all of us as well. The work of mission is complicated. It's, it's not simple. Oftentimes we think about mission work as something you send other people to go do. Often ways in the life of the church, we like to feature missionaries and have them come and speak to the congregation. This is a regular part of our rhythm, and it's an important part of the rhythm of our life together. But oftentimes what happens is that calling those individuals missionaries keeps us from calling ourselves missionaries at the same time. And so over the last several weeks, we focused on some different parts of what it means to be in mission. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about who needs to be in mission. And we focused on the fact that all of us need to be in mission. Last week, we focused on where do we need to be in mission. And again, we found that some of us are called to be in mission in very local settings, like here in this city or maybe on our street or our neighborhood or the building we live in. Some of us are called to be in mission in a regional sort of way. Some of us are called to be in mission with people groups different from ourselves. And some of us are called to be in mission in a much more global expression around the world. So we've talked about who, we've talked about where, and today we get to the third question, how? How do we do mission? What are some things we need to hold on to in our own lives as we engage, bless you, in doing mission? Now, when I first started thinking about mission years ago, I, I saw a movie that was reorienting to me about mission. And it happened right when I graduated high school, before I started college at Biola. And it's from 1986. It's a movie called The Mission. And it has uh, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons and a very, very, very young Liam Neeson in it. And I want to set up the story for you just a little bit. The, the, the Portuguese had planted a mission in Latin America. And it had been thriving and growing as part of a Roman Catholic expression of mission. Well, there came a treaty dispute between the Portuguese and the Spanish. 
And they decided in that process that the piece of geography where the mission was located was now going to move from Portuguese jurisdiction to Spanish jurisdiction. And one of the demands of the king of Spain was that the mission be closed and shut down and that all the Portuguese priests that had been working at the mission needed to return to Portugal. So then the Spaniards could come and set their own mission in place with their own priests and their own leadership. The scene I'm going to show you is the scene where the Portuguese bishop is sitting at the table with the indigenous people in Latin America explaining to them that their mission has to close. Let's watch. They must leave the mission. They say they don't want to leave the mission. The mission is their home. They must learn to submit to the will of God. Tell them. They say it was the will of God that they came out of the jungle and built the mission. They don't understand why God has changed his mind. I cannot hope to understand God's reasons. As hard as he know, you know God's will. He doesn't think you speak for God. He thinks you speak for the Portuguese. I do not personally speak for God, but I do speak for the church, which is God's instrument on earth. He says, why don't you speak to the king of Portugal? I have spoken to the king of Portugal. He will not listen. So he is also a king. He also will not listen. Says they were wrong ever to have trusted us. They're going to fight. Well, then you must persuade them not to fight. I failed to persuade you to fight on their behalf. If they do fight. It is absolutely imperative that no one of you should even seem to have encouraged them to do so. And therefore, all of you will return with me to Asuncion tomorrow. If anyone should disobey this, you will be excommunicated, cut off, cast out. Well, seen. And if you haven't watched that movie in a while, or have never seen it, I encourage you to do so. It doesn't have a happy ending. 
You know, mission for us, especially as Americans, is a fraught and dangerous enterprise. We are part of a history of colonial expansion from Europe that conquered, oppressed, and stole from indigenous peoples around the world. So when we talk about how we're going to do mission, we have to talk about it in a way that helps us understand how do we do mission in a way that is um, illuminated by our past, not in spite of it, illuminated by it, so that we can understand ourselves, whether you're in mission in your apartment building or whether you're in mission on your street or whether you're in mission in some other part of the world, you can do so in a way that is life-giving. And so let's turn to John's gospel, John chapter 20. If you do have your Bible, I invite you to open it and follow along with me in John chapter 20, beginning at verse 21. If you don't, we're going to put the verses on the screen so it's cool. Now, when we're talking about how we do mission, we have to start first by having a conversation about how mission is relational. Mission is relational. In the scene you watched in the, the movie there, you see the tension, don't you? That there's the relationship that the priests have with the indigenous people, but then in comes the institutional church, and all of a sudden the mission is no longer relational. Now it's all political, and it's all messed up with all of these other issues and dynamics at work. Mission is relational. Listen to what Jesus says in John 20, verse 21. He said to them again, Peace be to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. <clears throat> this story in John's gospel happened on the very first Easter Sunday. So this text might be familiar to you since we just read it in church in April. Right now we're reading it again, but with a different lens. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now what's relational about that? Well, you have to imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago in the cultural and social order of Jesus' day. So in Jesus' day, if you were a farmer and you were the patriarch of the household and you had a son, guess what your son would grow up to be? A farmer. And if you were a fisherman, what did your son grow up to be? A fisherman. If you were a carpenter, your son grew up to be a carpenter. So what happens in our world today is rather foreign and unknown in the ancient world. My son David lives in San Diego. He's an electrical engineer, and he works for the Navy. I'm a pastor of a church in Seattle. You see what I'm getting at? The way in which we understand vocation between fathers and sons today is really different than the ancient world. So when Jesus says things in John's gospel, like, I and the Father are one, it is my work to do the will of the Father, those are not necessarily purely theological statements. Those are also anthropological statements, like, well, if God is my Father, my job is to do the work my Father does. So, if Jesus is saying, as the Father has sent me, you understand? That's a father-son relationship. Now Jesus says, so I send you. So Jesus sends us, not as a military commander, for us to carry out his orders. Rather, Jesus sends us in relationship. Just as he and the Father are in a relationship, so we're sent in relationship. 
What we know from the New Testament is that Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, our Master, and our friend, and our brother. These are all words used in the New Testament to describe his role to us. So there's this relationship that we have to bring to bear, and we have to remember this. As a matter of fact, we have to remember it at all costs. Sometimes the most important things that we've learned in life also come in relationships. So I could ask you about maybe a workshop or a seminar you attended once upon time, and you maybe learned something there. But if I want to ask you about the people who had the deepest impact on forming your character and who you are today, you won't necessarily, you may, you won't necessarily name a classroom environment, but you will name a mentor, a professor, a teacher, a parent, a relative, another individual you were in relationship with whose mission in their life was you and the impact that they had on you. All mission is relational. And we really need to rediscover what that means for us. That if we want to be apostles or to be in mission for God, we have to remember that we're in a relationship, that we're part of a movement, we're part of an institution the church that expresses itself in a movement. Some of my favorite writers about mission are these three authors of a book I read uh, a number of years ago, Alan Hirsch, Tim Ketchum, and Mike Breen. And Alan Hirsch wrote this particular section of the book with this quote. He says, a recovery of apostolic gifting, and apostolic gifting means the gifts that go with apostles who are sent on mission, means that the church of Jesus Christ and all its expressions will begin to open itself up to a more missional, definitely more, and they make up a word here, movemental, and we hope a more faithful future. Every single one of us has these gifts to be in mission for what God has called us to do. Our mission is where we live, work, and play. We talked about that last week, remember? We talked about your mission could be in your apartment building, on your street, it could be in your neighborhood, it could be somewhere around the globe. It doesn't necessarily have to be exotic, although I've never been to your apartment building before. <laughs> it requires nothing except to know Jesus. It requires nothing except to know Jesus. So mission is relational. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We're sent in a relationship. Second, it's in the next verse, verse 22. Mission is universal. Mission is universal. It says in verse 22 of John 20 that when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's hard to think that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit just on those 10 people in the room and no one else. So they get the Holy Spirit and nobody else gets it. Now, we spent some time, you might uh, remember if you were here back in, in May, talking about how the Holy Spirit has come upon the church and the whole church. And last week I shared with you that the Holy Spirit is given to the church to accomplish its mission, and that the mission of the church requires the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill it. If there's no mission, the Holy Spirit sits inert. The Holy Spirit isn't given to us for recreation. It is given to us to accomplish a mission. And likewise, the mission cannot be accomplished without the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand. 
that's a universal truth we need to pay attention to. The spirit we have shared is absolutely necessary to what Jesus has asked us to do. But the Holy Spirit is not exclusive to some. It's needed by all. So um, inside these walls, there are about four of them in here, this is not where the mission occurs. The mission occurs where? You can say outside. It's good. It's healthy for you. It's outside. It's not in here. It's out there. And so uh, a sanctuary is kind of like a place to exalt and worship God, and it's like uh, the locker room <laughs> where we get to have a pep talk. We get to be encouraged. We get to pray. We get to talk to the coach. The coach isn't me. The coach is God. We have this moment to collect ourselves and then go out into mission. The mission is universal. Again, one of my favorite writers about mission is a man named Leslie Newbegin, a theologian of the 20th century. And here's what Newbegin writes. He said, the priesthood has to be exercised in the life of the world. But this priesthood is not within the walls of the church, but in the daily business of the world. That's where the priesthood works. So does that mean that all the people who are priests in the life of the church or pastors, they need to go with you to the places you work? Do I need to go to the office with you this week? So I can, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Although some of you might have cool jobs. It's ridiculous to take me with you everywhere. So the point is, what Newbegin's trying to say is that the priesthood is not the ordained. Who's the priesthood? All of you are the priesthood. Every single one of you is the priesthood. And that the priesthood happens outside the four walls of the church and the world. So Newbegin used to take hits from his critics saying that he was trying to get rid of the priesthood. That Newbegin thought the priesthood was of no value, the ordained ministers were of no value, and that they didn't matter. And Leslie Newbegin has the perfect response. And he said, I'm not trying to eliminate the clergy, I'm trying to eliminate the laity. <laughs> Do you understand the sarcasm? What he's trying to help us get past there's the idea or the notion that the clergy perform the work of the church and the laity watch it and consume it. And what he's suggesting is that the laity need to understand themselves as priests, as missionaries. This is a Protestant notion, is it not, called the priesthood of all believers, that every single one of us has a mission and a way to engage in the world. Mission is not something that happens in special places by special people. It's meant for every single one of us. And the last thing that we read in John chapter 20 about mission. Mission is relational. It's universal. And the last word is it's mutual. Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 23, this. Here's the verse. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Jesus imparts a strange authority to his followers. Do you see it? That apparently they can forgive sins and retain them. At least that's what it looks like when you read it on the, the surface. Many scholars agree that in the Gospel of John, this one verse is the hardest verse to interpret. 
because it seems to give Jesus' followers, his disciples, the authority to forgive and not forgive people. And so let's unpack this if a little, just for a little bit. Do you mind if I slow the boat down? We're going to stop for a minute and just work on this verse for a moment, okay? The key to understanding the verse has to do with the verbs in it. Yes, I'm sorry, eighth grade grammar has reared its head, all right? It's the verbs in the verse. So what does Jesus say? If you forgive the sins of any, their sins, what? Have been forgiven. Now, in English, we usually call that past tense. In Greek, it's a little bit more precise, and that's the language this is written in, in John 20. That tense is called the perfect tense, have been forgiven. That means an action that started in the past, and it's been completed in the past. It is not ongoing. It's not happening in the present. It started in the past, and it ended in the past. In other words, the action is complete, thus perfect. It's done. There's nothing else to be done. So what Jesus, in some ways, is telling his disciples is this, is that what you tell people, your sins have been forgiven or your sins have been retained, is actually a statement about something that happened when? In the past. And so what the disciples are charged then with doing isn't so much the process of forgiving people their sins or retaining their sins as they are proclaiming that. There's a difference between transacting that and proclaiming it. So who forgives sins, everyone? Try it out. God does. And how does God do that? Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how sins are forgiven, and it has been done. So what's at stake isn't whether sins are forgiven or not, it's whether or not people will accept the forgiveness that God offers or reject it. That's what's at stake. And that's what the disciples of Jesus proclaim. One of my other professors in seminary, one of my favorite professors, was a uh, man named David Augsburger. He was a Mennonite. He's a wonderful man, and he taught all of our classes on pastoral counseling. And David said this about proclamation. Here it is. Teaching is explaining truth. Preaching is proclaiming truth. Counseling is discovering truth. Very helpful. It's so helpful, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to write it down. I hear paper... I hear people writing. Oh, see now, look, I got folks with their phones out taking pictures. See, that works too. What David would argue is that the most powerful truth that people discover is the truth they discover in counseling, the, the capacity to self-discover something. And then he would say, Preaching is proclaiming truth, and that's what the disciples are being asked to do. Proclaim truth. This is why mission is mutual. And many of the mistakes that happen in the movie clip I showed you is because mission was not mutual there. The approach of the, the, the powers that be of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries were focused around we have something, 
We have the gospel, we have culture, we have technology, we have all these things. And then they would come to primitive indigenous people and they would say to them, we have, you need, thank God we're here. And when we do that, the mutuality of mission just gets ripped away. Because the truth of the matter, according to that verse, if we understand it correctly, who forgives sins, everyone? God forgives sins, everyone. And so what we're saying in this is not that we have and you need when we go on mission. What we're saying is that God has, you need, make a choice. That's a very different conversation than we have, you need. God has, Jesus has, hope, life, abundance, purpose, calling, healing, grace, forgiveness. God has all of these things. God has them. You can know them and receive them. That's our work. When we approach our work as if we have something, if we've got it, if we know what we're doing, if we've figured it out, well, that's the world we've been living in for about 100 years in this country, and how well is it doing for the church? We're number one most known for our hypocrisy, and a close second is our scandal. It's because we've been imposters. We've been pretending like we have something, and everyone outside needs it. No, my friends, God has something. God has something, and we simply proclaim it. People have to choose. They have to make their own choice in their own time in their own way. They can't be forced. They can't be coerced. They can't be pressured. People in their own time in their own way, they have to decide. The sign on the building says we're Methodist, and what that means is we believe in human free will, the capacity of every human being to make their choice, not only today about accepting God's forgiveness and salvation, but continuing to walk with God every single day. I had to wake up this morning and make a choice to live like a follower of Jesus. That's a choice, friends. God has the world and we need. That's mutuality. So we've talked about who is in mission. We've talked about where to be in mission. This morning I hope we've talked a little bit about how to be in mission. This means that wherever we live, work, and play, that we make it our life's aim to be what the Apostle Paul calls ambassadors of reconciliation wherever we go. To be proclaimers of God's truth. To not hide it, but to not poke people's eyes out with it either. Just to simply hold the gift that God has given and allow people to know that gift as much as we have. So my challenge to you today is very simple challenged all of us. Who is in mission, everyone? And the answer is what? All of us are in mission. Where are we to be in mission? Now, 
I want you to reflect for a moment and think and wonder about where God has called you to be in mission. Where? In your building, on your street, in a professional setting, different country, different people group? Where? And the third one, how are you going to be in mission? How are you going to live that out? How are you going to embody it? If I were to offer a challenge to you, what will you do in the next six days to take one step toward your mission? What are you going to do in the next six days to take one step toward your mission? Let's just have a time of silence to pray, each of us, to the Lord about that. Father, we know that you sent your Son into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. That was his mission. And that mission is ours as brothers and companions of your Son, Jesus. Our prayer this day, God, is that you show us how to gracefully live out our mission in the world that points to you. For God, you have so much to give. Your love is infinite and expansive and eternal. That, Lord, you desire nothing more than for every single human being and all of creation than to experience your love. And God, we're not quite sure or even certain why you have chosen to communicate that through the likes of us. And so, God, we simply pause in awe, wonder that you would call even us to be your witnesses. For most of us, God, we simply don't feel qualified. We may not even feel prepared. But yet, God, you call. So give us ears to listen, eyes to see, feet ready to move, hands willing to serve, and speech that proclaims the mighty name of Jesus. That is all we can offer this day, God. Just who we are. For your purpose and for your will. In the name of Jesus, we offer it. Amen.
Jesus tells his followers in the Gospels when he sends out the 12 and when he sends out the 70. These stories are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He tells them to go to a town. When you get there, proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. And if you get there and you find somebody who welcomes you, awesome. Go into their house and stay there. And then Jesus says, but if you go to a town and no one welcomes you, then you're to wipe the dust from your feet and leave as a witness against them. Apparently, Jesus was aware that every mission may not be successful. Whether it is or not, our call is to go. Our call is to go. The fruitfulness of mission isn't how well it's received. It's how authentically and honestly it's proclaimed. We're thankful for this meal that we gather around in which Jesus invites us to continue to proclaim the good news because it's at this meal, is it not that we remember that there is only one who forgives sins? That is God. And that that forgiveness comes through the broken bread and the shared cup by which we remember, celebrate, and honor the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you.